Welcome to Left on Red, the Daily Mountain Eagle's political history podcast. I'm Jennifer Coron. And I'm Drew Gilbert. And we're back this week to conclude that interview with Mary Jolly, talking about both her own life and the life of Congressman Carl Elliott. You're going to hear about his later years, which um, were quite difficult, to be honest. Uh, Debt, uh, health failures, um, lost uh, some loved ones close to him. It's not a happy story until the very, very end. So stay with us. It gets a little bit (laughs) better. Linger in there. Apologies for the Debbie Downer there at the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's a story and we're telling it. Mm -hmm. So we didn't make it up. Nope, we did not. Um, so here is part two with Mary. All right, Miss Jolly, I sat quietly for as long as I can. It's my turn to speak, I think, or at least ask you questions and wind you up so you can speak. Yeah. Um, tell me, set the scene for me on, on, um, race relations with, with, uh, Congressman Elliott and how he kind of struggled with, uh, that time. And he had to say just enough of the right thing to get elected, but, but then also, uh, after he was elected, do as much as he could, uh, good for as many people. Tell me kind of what that was like internally for, for you guys. I always thought that in northwest Alabama, there was such a small black population that the integration of schools would not be a great issue, that you know people would accept whatever was to come along and that it would be okay, and that the South Alabama was the place that would have trouble. The place where I went to school, would it would have, you know, the, if you had put blacks and whites together, we'd had to build some new school buildings. So anyway, um, it, it turns out, I learned that I think in that West Alabama region that we represented, where there are so few black people that the feeling was worse there than it was where I grew up because I grew up with so many black people. They were my playmates. I could have gone to school with them in a New York second and would have been real happy because uh, we just knew each other. And so that wasn't the case in Winston County. If you go in Winston County, you wouldn't see any black faces. And I remember being in the backwoods there one day when I went into a cash register and uh, looked, looked at a cash register where I was buying a Coca-Cola and this big sign there, uh, you know, no segregate, no integration ever. And if you bring it up, I mean, they would really get, really get overboard with it almost. So I think the feeling there surprised me. I did not realize that it, and I think it surprised Carl. I think we sort of thought, well, you know, we'll ride this through, you know, it won't be much of a problem here. There's so few. Well, that doesn't turn out to be the case. So he had to try to find the middle ground because he wanted to stay in Congress to get done some things that he was in line to get done and capable of doing. And how do you find that middle ground between where George Wallace is and where Carl Elliott was? I went to the brick plant in Cordova. I don't know if it's still there or not, but when George Wallace was campaigning for president, this was my realization of how serious it was. He came back from Wisconsin and he came to that brick plant and somebody had sent word for Carl to be there. 
He couldn't go. He sent me. So I go, and he met the press there, and then he went through that brick plant and just almost like a monkey climbing through around and shaking hands everywhere. Mm -hmm. And people just falling over to shake his hand, you know. The other incident in Walker County, and this was a frightening experience, there must have been 5,000 people in the courthouse square there where he made a talk. And I always said that if he had said, let's take our knives and our guns and let's march on Washington, that that crowd would have fallen in with him and started marching. And they were people I knew, uh, people who uh, I'd interacted with. Um, so it was just a dilemma. It was just, there was no middle ground. You couldn't talk about it. It was just uh, a terrible and a device, divisive issue. So his way of trying to do it was to thread the needle and he would go someplace forward, but not... He signed the Southern Manifesto, for example. That happened in 1956, I think it was. Um, and it was just saying that, that segregation is a way of life and that that's the way it should be continued. It, wasn't, it was not a belligerent thing. You know, it wasn't a, wasn't a George Wallace-type statement. It was a kind of a statesman-like statement, mm -hmm. <laughs> trying, to be, trying to thread that needle. So that's the, that was what he had to try to work with. And it was difficult, and, and especially in the field of education, which is where he wanted to make his mark. And when that came up in terms of the National Defense Education Act, he had to find a way to, to get through that. And, and on the committee where we worked, Adam Clayton Powell was the black congressman from New York City. And on every, he, he and Carl Elliott really liked one another. They were really... In ordinary times, they would have been good friends, but they were working friends. They could work together. And I always have believed, I never knew for sure, but I believe that they had this they had a conference, a conference about it, and he Powell did not offer the traditional Powell amendment that he was putting on every bill that came through the United States Congress. He, the NDEA just says that this bill shall not be prohibited to on the account of race, uh, religion, sex, you know, the traditional mm -hmm. phrasing. Uh, and it didn't have, otherwise it would have been withholding money if you went to a segregated institution. So we couldn't have, we couldn't have lived with that at all. So... so I believe you once made the statement that, that Carl Elliott could have been George Wallace if he wanted to. Um, did you, in fact, make that statement? Well, if I didn't, I made, I'd be glad to make it again. <laughs> <laughs> what, tell, me, tell me exactly what you mean by that. Well, he was a man of compassion and um, uh, cared about poor people. And, and he was in, in public life for a serious purpose. That was to serve the public. It was not for his own vanity or his own uh, well-being of any kind. It was a sacrifice that he made, I think. He didn't make money. He didn't get rich. He didn't sell his vote. And he said, I hold it in trust 
for these people that I represent. And I'm the only voice they've got. And I'm going to try to represent every living last one of them. And I think he tried to do that. And he used to say to me, <laughs> uh, he said, in 16 years, Mary, he said, you make everybody mad one time by what you do. And he said, your job is to try to get out here and find me new people to come along to keep me in Congress so I don't have to fight all these battles by myself. So he, uh, he was very aware of the fact that he had to make controversial votes. And he made some great ones. Medicare. He got on rules committee, and he was the one that he was the one vote that brought it out. So nobody knows that he, you know, he was at his last days in Congress, but but that happened. So anyway, I, the race thing is what ultimately got him out of office, and uh, he went to he, um, well, President Johnson set up this meeting for him to meet with Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King. They met at the Birmingham airport. And uh, Carl said, I'm running for governor, and I think I can make, make a go at it, but I'm going to need these new voters. 250,000 people, black people, had been put on the voting rolls in this state. 250,000 at that time. It's more than that now. And so Dr. King said, well, you know, if you're going to be a leader, you're going to have to do some things that your people want done. And Richmond Flowers was out trying to get all the black votes. He didn't politic anywhere except in black churches, black communities. Turns out that I think he had an ulterior motive that because he had to go for a jury shortly after the election was over, and he went to prison for several years for the work he did as Attorney General. So there was no way that we could, Dr. King couldn't at that point say to the black community, don't vote for Flowers and vote for Elliott because Flowers was openly asking them. Carl Elliott was sort of asking them. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't, and I remember being in South Alabama when the white folks were in the courthouse and they didn't trust him because he voted for education, you know. They didn't like that. White people didn't. And then the black people didn't like him because he wasn't trying to do... So I could feel that, that there were, you know, neither the white people or the black people were going to vote for him. So what do you do, you know? But anyway, he, got, he, he survived his own primary that year with Tom Bevel. But but this was in the governor's campaign when he was when I was in South Alabama with him. So it's a tough issue, and we we're not there yet, but we sure have made a lot of progress. So that was the you talked a lot there about the '66 campaign for governor, uh, and so that that followed after his '64 campaign. You would have worked on where. Um, he, he was not reelected to Congress, correct? That's right, yeah. Can, can you tell me a little bit about yeah. that, that campaign in 64? What, what was that one like and maybe how it was different from the yeah. others? Well, in the, he, he lost in the general election that year to a Republican. And that was the Goldwater years. And, and Alabama lost five members of Congress that year, all Democrats, replaced by five Republicans. That sudden shocked everybody. Nobody expected it. 
but that happened. So it wasn't that wasn't very pleasant. <laughs> and that was and, the and quite was, unexpected. I want to help a little bit here. It was the low man out race, right? The low man out race. Remember, wasn't that the congressional yeah. year? It lost. It was the nine, so. Explain yeah. to us what that means. Yeah. The low man out race, yeah. and he was the he was. There was like eight who moved on. Yep. And he was not the one. Yep. So after after that, let's talk a little bit of your your post Carl Elliott resume, if we if we can. Um, you moved on. Uh, you were the vice president for development at Trident Technical College in South Carolina. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh-huh. You, want, you yeah. want to tell a little bit about your time there? And was yeah. that in the Charleston area? I think you said. Yes, Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. Uh-huh. And how long were you there in, in I, that role? I was there eight years. One of the good things that happened to me in Washington after all of this was I met my husband there. So I had married to Richard Jolly, and he was detailed to the medical university in South Carolina. He was an academic vice president, and so that meant that I was going to Charleston as well because I wasn't going to let him go without me. So anyway, we uh, both had jobs. I was vice president of a community college. Uh, it was a really good time for me. I, I was ready to leave Washington. I think you, at least I did, I kind of grew stale at that place. I mean, you see the same old people and the same old issues, and you just work them and work them. And, you know, I, I did travel a lot while I was there because I, after Carl left, I worked for the American Vocational Association. And so I traveled a lot across the country. So I was vice president for development at, at uh, this community college. We've had three counties, three campuses, and I just had a great time there. The, I, I got to do some things that I hadn't done before. Like I, I created a program for women to be educated for non-traditional jobs. Instead of a secretary going into the pink collar workforce, we were training people to be women, to be welders, machine tool operators, things that civil uh, engineering technology students, because they made salaries that were really well be- above what a secretary could make. So we, but we had to start at the high school level because women thought that they had to wear high heels and all this kind of stuff, and so we made it okay for them to wear jeans to go to work and when they got a paycheck it made a whole lot of difference to them so we made made that really stick in that town it was it was a good way to organize women to sort of lift everybody a little bit above where they were and we also did a lot of work in um, in a area of Charleston that was uh, on the east side where we did a small business incubator. Took a huge old building, the Control Data Corporation came in as the partner and put in the first uh, computerized literacy program that I have known about called Pluto, I think it was. Plato, it was Plato. And so we got to get in early on some, some technology to train people to read, write, and compute. So we did a lot of experimental kind of stuff, and I was really happy there, and we had a good time. And I came here because some, uh, one of my friends had come to uh, Charleston to 
to an exposition where they were, he was the attorney for uh, Madison County and uh, he was detailed by them to decide what kind of voting machines they were to have. So he came to the exposition in Charleston to see all this and, and make that decision. And I took him to see the small business incubator. And I said, Alabama needs this. Go home and get one. So he said, I think we could get one maybe at the University of Alabama. I said, would you go tell Joab Thomas if I get him open the door for you? I said, yes. So turns out Joab got the university plane and he sent a plane load of people from Tuscaloosa over to Charleston to see what we had done in that incubator. And long story short, that brought me back to Alabama. So that's, they, they ultimately decided that, that, yeah, that was the direction we are gonna go in. Well, when I got here, they were into all these other things and there was never enough hands to go around. So just this last year, they have finally opened a small business incubator in Tuscaloosa. <laughs> <laughs> but now we incubated some small businesses, but it wasn't in an it wasn't in the University of Alabama. But I got to work in a lot of rural areas. I had a good time in uh, in Jasper. You know, we did some things up there when uh, Betsy Lovano was at the community college and uh, Harold Wade. Boy, we were chucking and jiving up there with. Uh, good things. Still going. The Family Resource Center, we did that. We did the Carl Elliott House, planned the whole heritage thing, and now the, you know, the bankhead split it off up to the bankhead house, but we had that downtown area really covered. Had some money that we could get, and they just let it kind of slip, so. Well, tell me, let's come back to, uh, to Mr. Elliott a little bit. Uh, when when Julian Butler and yourself nominated him for the first Profile in Courage Award, tell me a little bit about where the congressman was in life and, and maybe how that helped shape those final years of his life. Yeah. Well, um, along right before we made that nomination, there was a newspaper reporter had showed up in Jasper. Well, he called Carl and said he wanted to interview him because he was writing a book. The reporter was writing a book about Adam Clayton Powell, and he told Carl, he said, you're the only living person that, I, that served with him. The rest of these people are gone, and I need to interview you. And I, he worked for the Boston Globe, and he said, I'm coming to Jasper, and such and such a date, will you see me? So yeah, they would. So Will Haygood flies in and comes to Birmingham, gets a car, goes to Jasper, stopped somewhere at a service station and said, can you tell me how to find 1700 Birmingham Avenue? I'm looking for Carl Elliott. And whoever answered said, well, he's dead. He doesn't, he, he doesn't live. And he said, no. He said, I just spoke to him a little bit ago on the phone. And he said, so finally he found his way to 1700. He wrote, he came to do the interview. He did his interview, but then he called his newspaper and he said, I've got a story. I want to write the story about this man I've come to interview. So it was almost a full page in the Boston Globe with a picture. They flew, a, they even flew a photographer down from Boston from the newspaper to make a picture. And they detailed what had happened to this man who had been such a prominent player in the national scene. And here he was living alone in Jasper, Alabama, house falling in. Uh, you know, no evidence of any 
activity or or even nobody in the town knew that he was still living. It was kind of the tone of the newspaper article that he had, that he wrote. Well, when that article got published, then he Carl Elliott started getting tons of mail from people around the Boston, New England area who read that paper was writing him articles. I went to school with an NDEA loan and I'm now a dentist and I wouldn't have been here or I'm going to Harvard to get my doctorate because I got an NDEA and I want to do something about education, on and on. Then the Chicago Tribune reprinted it out in Chicago and he got the same kind of response from that. Well, that, it, 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 you know, that was real exciting to me, and I think he was pleased, I know he was, but he was in a, in a dark mode and a dark time in his life. And so I read in the newspaper about um, the possibility of the Kennedy thing, and so I got in the car and went to Jasper to, I said, I want to come and look through the scrapbooks and find some stuff that I'm going to use to do this nomination. And uh, he, was, he wanted to talk about his funeral and where he wanted to be buried. And, uh, you know, just he was really, really, I think I, it's the only time I ever heard him, at least he didn't talk to me about, you know, being dead and gone and nobody cares kind of thing. So anyway, we nominated him and he got the, got the award. But he, he was in, you know, he lost his wife and he lost his son, lost two sons to death. And so he had two daughters left. And that, that's a real blow to a man. And his health was gone. His sight was probably, you know, he couldn't read. He couldn't even have a good time to read a book, you know. So it was, it was pretty tough. And I think the, the award really brought him to life again and, he, you know, people found out that he was still living. We even had Alabama newspaper reporters coming out there to talk to him. So Carl Elliott, obviously, and he believed that politics was a noble endeavor um, to, to serve the people, to help the people. Do you think he would still feel that way if he were alive today? I think he would say that, um, that the country has survived a lot of hard times, he, he would always go back, to, I'm sure, to the Civil War. You know, we were a divided country. We killed one another. Families divided up in that northwest section of Alabama, you know, Winston County and seceded. So we have been through tough times. Um, we went through a depression. We went through the Roosevelt years when people had nothing, hardly could eat. So I think he would say that we just have to have faith I think he would he would decry the notion that uh, or the the reality that that we are wake, weakening our governmental institutions, our justice system. You know, do we have a president who is above the law, uh, the norm? I think those things are all being questioned, and how we're going to come out, I don't know yet, but. Um, I think, he'd, I think he would believe that a democracy is strong enough to withstand some blows. But we're going to have to do a repair job if we keep our democracy. we just got to figure out how to do that. And I think we'll, we'll be learning as we go.
But I think he would. I think he would not give up on America ever. I think he would think it's strong enough and good enough, and people are, you know, can learn to trust and get along and work together. It takes leadership, but sometimes that vacuum can fill up with somebody who's pretty good. This one isn't on the list, but I think you might want to talk about it a little bit. What's the legacy of Carl Elliott for these future generations? Talk about Carl Elliott's legacy. What should we take from the story of Carl Elliott? Well, I think the notion of, of um, the common good, that's what he stood for, that, that everybody ought to have a chance in, in this life. And I have an opportunity, so if we can keep that door open, I think he showed us that that's important. I think it's important that uh, we have a government that uh, is compassionate, uh, that it opens its doors to people. I mean, we would not be a country had we not filled up with immigrants. That's, that's who we are. We all came from somewhere. So we have to learn to live with that. And I think sticking to you, having a, I guess the way he would, he used to say, there's some things I won't do just to keep this job. And so you need to know where that line is in your life, whatever you do, whether you're in public service or whatever. There's some things you won't do. And he knew what they were. And in terms of his political life, he used to say to us as employees, I remember he would always say, don't you ever do any petty stealing. He said, just don't do it. He said, it costs 95 cents to go to the national airport. You write down 95 cents. Don't write down a dollar and a half. He said, that's just petty. And he, I don't want to have to face a bunch of newspaper reporters asking me, about my expense accounts. Now, you just put down what's supposed to put down. So those kind of things, he, he was just, you know, he was sensible about it. And he was that way. I mean, he would give away his life, really. Uh, he, he, when he was a student selling chewing gum on the campus or cutting trees or whatever, making less than a dollar an hour, he would send money home to his own parents who were just having a hard time living with eight children still at home, all of whom did go to school and did get college degrees, some of them graduate degrees. So he, he just, he, we can learn that he was a person who cared about his family. He was deeply rooted in who he was and that he cared about them, and he looked after them, and he would, he would do it for anybody who needed a hand up. I met a man not long ago, last year as a matter of fact, he's 80-something years old, he said to me, we were starving to death, they lived up in, Winston, in uh, Marion County, he said, we were literally starving, my daddy had been killed in the coal mines, my mama was trying to feed us children, and she went to see Carl Elliott, and he got her Social Security. Now, what I know that he didn't know, but what, what his mother was eligible for the money, 
Carl couldn't manufacture that. But she didn't know how to access it. And then there's a process you have to go through. And if you can't go through that process, you don't have it. And so that's, I'm sure that's what he did. I don't remember what he did, but I'm sure that, is, that it was a simply a matter of filling out the paperwork. But in his mind, Carl Elliott rescued them. And he still remembers that, and he tell, told me about it. He was a coach up in, in Winston County, in uh, Marion County. So he, he was just a man who cared about people and who wanted to do good and, and uh, did his best. And as he says, he can live with that. So. And we're back. We hope, um, we hope you were entertained, but with this one particularly, I hope you learned something. I hope you learned yep. something you didn't know before you tuned in the first time with us here about Carl Elliott. Yeah, and, and for me, like embarrassingly, um, I really felt like my knowledge on Carl Elliott was pretty low. Mm-hmm. We talked about this when we first uh, discussed the interview with Mary Jolly, and uh, I'm kind of embarrassed by that because we we take for granted, I think, the, the whole of the picture you're talking about from the time John Hollis Bankhead Sr. went in in mm-hmm. the 1890s right. up until Tom Bevel's exit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walker County had representation in D.C. Mm-hmm. And what these weren't lame duck guys we were sending up there. These mm-hmm. weren't do-nothings. We, right. we sent doers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, man, I think we take that for granted. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping we have that again. Like, I would right. love to see us, like, raise mm-hmm. raise a, a son or daughter up and send them to D.C. again. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm almost uh, I'm a little embarrassed by my lack of uh, mm-hmm. Carl Elliott knowledge. So Well, and another one I'll throw out there for um, a couple of magazines ago I did uh, – series of interviews on Carter Manasco, who, if you really want to talk about somebody who's forgotten, Carter Manasco, he squeezed in there between the Bevels and Carl Elliott. Um, He actually loses his job um, after serving through the World War II years. He was secretary to Speaker Bankhead, and then he takes his his spot after uh, Speaker Bankhead passes away. He served through the World War II years. He loses his spot representing this district because basically he's too conservative for the district. And just a few, uh, so Carl Elliott is is elected in his place. Carl Elliott replaces him. And then about 12 or so years later, Carl Elliott loses his job because he's too liberal for the district. Um, And man, doesn't that paint the picture of this entire podcast. uh Uh-huh, right. (laughs) Um, But he had a fascinating history, Carter Manasco. He spent more time working in D.C. than any of the other guys, Bevel, Elliot, the bank kids, any of them. So another forgotten guy that I got to do with uh, with the magazine. But yes, there was that long span. Uh, and when doing that with Carter Manasco, there were actually the other counties in the district got really upset. You know, when election time would come around and there was even headlines about is Walker County, you know, the only place with talent? They didn't understand why they hadn't had a person in D.C. from, say, Coleman or whatever, you know, for... 50 or 75 years. They really yeah. had questions about this. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that that's an interesting legacy that we have with our political leaders there. Um, I told Mary, um, we didn't talk to it about, uh, talk to her in the interview, but um, for those of you who don't know, Carl Elliott has a list of things called Advice for a Good Life. Uh, they found this on a sheet of paper on his uh, refrigerator, I think after he had passed away, um, and it had been signed by him. I think that is still 
on the refrigerator if you go in his house, or at least a copy of it they left there. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, and these are just some simple guidelines for how to be a decent human being, you might as well call it. Have compassion for the poor. Educate the ignorant. Feed the hungry. Guide those who've lost their way. Don't kick a person who is down. Heal the wounded. Love those who are least lovable. They need it most. Warm the cold. Wash the dirty. Water the thirsty. And those are the 10 tips from Carl Elliott to, uh, to live a good, decent life. Let me tell you, there are some stark parallels to the 10 things you just read mm-hmm. and the lessons that I learned in Sunday school. Mm-hmm. Um, how quickly we forget that pretty often. It's right. tough. We get caught up in what we are, what we're doing, who, who our political party is, mm-hmm. or who our leaders are, what their rhetoric is. And at the end of the day, it'd be hard for any decent human being to argue that those 10 things aren't mm-hmm. true. It would also be hard for um, someone that has studied any bit of the Bible that that's pretty much the main message. What you're told to do. Yeah. So I would encourage everyone to, to kind of try to align this stuff mm-hmm. for them and try to lose a little bit of the noise maybe maybe that we've created mm-hmm. here because we're always trying to shove you to one side right. or the other. Man, we're all in it together. And 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 keep in mind, he wasn't Pollyanna. Sometimes. He knew what it was to be on top and he knew what it was to lose. Oh, yeah. And he knew what it was oh, to yeah. be poor and to have poor health. This, that was during the time this would have been written, possibly. Don't even know who it was written for, I don't think. It was just posted on his refrigerator. So I don't think he mass produced this or he's been mass produced now to a certain degree. Right. But I think this was just an older man having thoughts one day and he wrote them down and put them on his refrigerator. So yeah. keep that in mind that. At the end of your life, Carl Elliott decided to just think about what things matter and what things didn't, Mm -hmm. and he chose those 10 things. So uh, we'll try to put this out on the Facebook page um, so people can have a copy of this. But just wanted to leave that. I told Mary that I would. I know um, she's very proud of that and thinks that it pretty much sums up both how she tried to live her life and how he lived his life. And I think anyone that tries to live that way has done okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's not let's not get lost in we're all going to fail at mm-hmm. some of that sometimes. Right. Um, that, and that's a big problem we have too. Is once someone fails, we're like, oh, we just discredit that you're even mm-hmm. trying this. And um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna slip, right. we're gonna fall, we're gonna stumble. But if you try that, mm-hmm. you, you're probably a pretty okay human being. Right. Um, well, I guess I should mention at this point, so we're doing these kind of in advance uh, so that you guys can have something to listen to that's not coronavirus related. <laughs> uh, so we have no way of knowing at the moment this episode gets released where we are in that arc of crazy. Um, but uh, we hope that this is giving you a little bit of a reprieve from whatever might be going on. If we've come out on the other side of it or not. Uh, we just wanted to get some content out to you. So. Yeah, jump off Facebook or Twitter for about an hour and mm-hmm. <laughs> just listen to something listen, good. Listen to something good. Uh, so we'll be back next week with, I think we're going to decide, Corey Franks. Yeah. Let's go, Corey Franks. Yeah, one of my favorite Walker County mayors. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly in my top five. Mm-hmm. Top eight. How many are there? Many are there? <laughs> <laughs> we won't talk about the ones you've probably voted off the island by now. That probably that list is probably smaller than the total. I find they vote themselves off the island around this That's part. true. Uh, so we'll be back next week.
Left on Red is a DME Media Production. Copyright 2020, Daily Mountain Eagle.